Welcome to Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 6, Episode 10, presented by Market Dial. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Well, breaking news. We interrupt our regularly scheduled show for a special solo episode right for the time, ripped from the headlines. Faster than a Russian jet spraying a Reaper drone with jet fuel, the banning of TikTok, inspired by the overnight collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. That's right. We're talking about VUCA. Steve, tell the people what's VUCA all about. Well, VUCA is an acronym. It stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous. And it is actually a, uh, I talk about this in my, in my book, it's actually derived from military strategy. But over the years, some folks have come to use it to describe more kind of broadly the, the business circumstances. And I think it's, uh, it's a good way to describe the world we live in and provide some useful, useful backdrop for taking action. Yeah, so that we'll have a solo episode. We'll get to talking all about VUCA uh, and its implication. We're not really going to do a deep dive into the Silicon Valley Bank itself, but more the context of this, this, you know, how do we adapt and all this, whether it's a global pandemic or all these sudden shocks. All right, well, speaking of, uh, of inspired, we were inspired to do this episode with recent events. I hope you like that segue. We're off to Shop Talk in Vegas uh, very soon on a big jet plane. We'll be very, very busy. First of all, uh, you're on the stage dropping some knowledge with fellow retail thought leaders. Um, tell us uh, and tell the people who a little bit about who you're with and what you're talking about and, and when they should block off their calendars if they happen to uh, be, se- be one of the thousands attending the show. Well, I'm batting cleanup. Uh, my session is uh, in the last slot of sessions on Wednesday. Best and we're going to be talking about innovation in retail. And I've got uh, three guests joining me. Head of strategy from Tractor Supply Company, head of brand marketing from UGG, and the CEO and founder of a fast-growing uh, sexual wellness brand called Maud. So mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about what innovation looks like, what's the difference between sustaining and disruptive kind of innovation, and some particular ways of sorting out what retailers need to do to innovate at the speed of disruption. Well, there you go. There you have it, folks. If you, uh, for some reason, were bugging out from Shop Talk early, now you've got the reason to change those flights, change those plans, because uh, that sounds like a fantastic uh, session. Now, we're also, uh, we've been working overtime to secure a number of super interesting interviews for the people and for our Shop Talk adventure. Uh, our, our good friends at WiseLine have come on board as sponsors of our podcast studio, who's WiseLine. Um, they are a global technology service provider, gives retailers digital superpowers in areas like omni-channel, digital marketing, personalization, cost optimization through automation. So wonderful to have them on board. And uh, it's going to be super fun for us. We're going to be by the beach in Mandalay Bay. That's right. We've got a cabana rented as our podcast studio. So we'll be sipping cocktails and talking retail with some fantastic guests. We're really looking forward to it. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, get into the news. Well, the news, the big story of the news, because we often start with the biggest story, is actually the whole subject of the show. In fact, you and I were talking off mic. We were almost going to jump on last episode um, and just, you know, do an augmentation to the to the uh, to the episode and the news. You know, we we the bank had kind of started to unravel over the weekend, but uh, we thought, hey, uh, let's do a whole episode based on not, again, not really Silicon Valley Bank, but it's unraveling in the state of, of chaos. Now, just uh, for a few of the folks who um, don't know what SVB is, I really wasn't that familiar with it. Founded in 1983, by December of uh, last year, they held $209 billion, uh, in assets, $175 billion in deposits, 
Uh, 44%, I'm throwing out a few facts here that I didn't know, 44% of U.S. venture-backed tech uh, uh, IPOs bank with SVB. 90% of it counts more than 250000 which is higher than your typical bank, which means the risk was a bit higher. I, I guess the government's stepped <laughs> in turns there. Out. <laughs> and then I guess they unraveled with the big problem, uh, billions invested in treasury bonds. I mean, again, there's lots of folks talking about this that know way more than me. But basically, that's SVB. And I, and I think they were present in a lot of different places, right? Like you you knew someone in Dallas that uh, was with the bank. And, and so you've come across them probably more than once or twice in your in your career in consulting, yeah? Sure. Well, um, I'm on a few advisory boards of, of tech companies. Um, I'm not necessarily going to disclose which of them bank with SVB. But, uh, but I also, uh, as I'm around the Texas venture community in particular here in Dallas and occasionally down in Austin. SVB is a pretty constant presence at mm. a lot of events. The uh, woman that runs the area here uh, would frequently be attending. SVB was often one of the lead sponsors of some of these type of events. So, uh, yeah, really a, a key player in the venture ecosystem. So, uh, well, anyway, we're, we, that's probably kind of as much as we're probably going to talk about SVB, but we're going to get to the, again, this VUCA concept a bit later uh, in the show. But first, our news. So let's start out with U.S. monthly sales. I guess this is our, our monthly reminder to everyone that month-over-month uh, month sales don't matter. But um, <laughs> Eventually, we'll be able to stop saying that. But as long as the Wall Street Journal and CNBC and yeah. everybody else puts it in the headline, I am yeah. on a mission. If only we knew, if only we knew someone at the Wall Street Journal that we can tap uh, and kind of, you know, once she becomes the editor of the entire paper, that's when I think we might have some some luck. But anyway, talk about U.S. monthly sales, what your observations were and um, what your thoughts are. Well, it's a little bit of different day, same story in terms of the, the patterns we've seen for several months. So I'll go through this pretty quickly. Uh, sales were up pretty solidly overall, but pretty much in line with inflation. Uh, if you look at the rate of year-over-year change across the last several months, the growth rate's moderating a bit, but but not dramatically softer. When you kind of do the deep dive into some of the categories below, there's really unusual strength. I'm not sure I can completely understand it in general merchandise stores. So as, uh, you know, this would include mm. the discount mass merchants as well as uh, department stores. Uh, that was up. 10% year over year. Uh, and personal care, you know, health and beauty, AIDS, beauty, those sort of things were up 8%. So that definitely seems to be materially mm-hmm. above inflation. Uh, clothing, footwear, those sort of businesses uh, up slightly, uh, probably down when you consider inflation. Uh, and then again, more of the same in terms of weakness in big ticket kinds of products for the home, furniture, consumer electronics, appliances, and, and those sort of things. Um, you know, we did get a little bit of news about inflation mm-hmm. and the job mm-hmm. market. Uh, the job market continues to be pretty darn strong, mm-hmm. which, of course, makes people wonder, uh, and we'll get more into, you know, the whole SVB banking sort of stuff mm-hmm. in, the, in the heart of the episode. But, but generally speaking, it's pretty clear that while inflation might be moderating a bit, like, for example, egg prices, which had been sky high, have started mm-hmm. to drop a lot. Mm-hmm. Gas prices, which have been quite volatile, but they've in general been going, going down over the last week or so. So there's some pieces of good news mm-hmm. uh, with the inflation picture, but, but still remains quite a bit higher than I think the, the folks in the Federal Reserve and other banking systems around the world uh, want to see. 
let's talk about uh, let's talk about uh, some quicker hits with uh, Nordstrom. So they announced some layoffs, which of course is in addition to laying off everyone in Canada, including their stores. But uh, what what make of you of uh, Nordstrom statements? Well, the Nordstrom business, uh, like several other businesses we've touched on, you know, as results have come in, uh, they're not so great, and Nordstrom seems to be making a real effort to get their costs more in line with where their sales seem to be going, which is uh, downward, unfortunately. So mm. they announced about, I think it's 2,500 layoffs. You know, I, I don't necessarily expect, but you know, given what we're going to talk about in the balance of the episode, who knows at this point, but I don't necessarily expect you know, massive layoffs across retail, mm-hmm. but within the companies that are having a hard time driving the top line, uh, you know, I think we can expect more so. Um, you know, this is one of the bigger companies that announced a, a pretty big layoff on top of layoffs that we've seen from Neiman Marcus, from Sachs, mm-hmm. some of the other players uh, who you would think would be a little bit more insulated from inflation. But apparently, sales uh, the sales outlook continues to be pretty soft. Well, speaking of that, great segue into layoffs, more layoffs at uh, Meta. Uh, with uh, their year of efficiency continuing to uh, to roll out, Zuckerberg warning economic instability could continue for many years. I mean, I think they start. It sounds like they're rewiring away from the idea of the metaverse and and focusing more on AI and anything else. We can make of these layoffs. I mean, they they hire <laughs> a lot of people, right? I mean, the higher they they fire. Yeah. I mean, that's the industry, right? I mean, these the layoffs, uh, the two rounds of layoffs uh, have pretty massive numbers. Uh, part of the analysis I've seen, which you know we've talked about in the past, just in general about some of these tech layoffs, is so many of these companies went crazy mm-hmm. hiring people over the last two or three years. So even with these layoffs, they're still going to have more people working at Meta than they did a couple years ago. So it's not, I mean, it's obviously difficult for the people affected. I wouldn't say it's really a, a sign that, something's you know really terrible at, at meta now the uh, story from europe here and europe is uh front of our minds because of course we're heading off to barcelona for the world retail congress so we've been thinking a lot about europe uh gallery karstadt kaufhof is one of europe's largest Wunderbar. that was a great great pronunciation <laughs> donka, donka. uh one of our uh, one of europe's largest and oldest department stores has been struggling um not unusual really around the world and now they're closing 52 of their 129 stores by percentage, huge, and uh, 5,000 job losses. So I guess, you know, the dynamics are, of course, a little different in Europe, but does the story remain the same? Well, I think this is really more uh, indication of the collapse of the middle. You know, we typically end up talking about that, uh, focused on the U.S., but if you go around the world, whether you're talking about Western Europe, or you're talking about, you know, Australia. Uh, we've we've seen a lot of struggles uh, in the mm-hmm. in the department store space. So I think it is just kind of more of the same. You know, it's interesting just having spent some time in the Middle East over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, you, you almost see a tale of two cities or tale of two <laughs> countries or regions or however you want to look at it. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, you know, I think the department store sector overall, you know, is gross generalization uh, is, is thriving in mm-hmm. the Middle East, but just about everywhere else, it's anywhere from extremely challenging to, you know, at best kind of middling. Um, well, let's end on a more positive note. And still in Europe, uh, Canadian superpower in uh, convenience stores, Kustard, buys 2,200 gas stations uh, in Europe. And uh, that brings, I mean, they've got uh, 14,000 stores, so I guess they'll now have more than 16,000 stores. They tried to buy 
grocery, uh, French grocer Carrefour last year. I mean, they're $50 billion. I mean, yeah, you and I were at Nax in Las Vegas, and, and maybe we'll put some links in the show notes to some great interviews. The C-Store, convenience store category, is just ripe for transformation from you know how people drive to how people spend their time. It's a really interesting space, eh? Yeah, it is. And uh, you know, here in Dallas, we've got Seven Eleven, which is uh, one of the biggest players, and they've been experimenting with a lot of things. So, yeah, it's a space that uh, you know, frankly, I mean, I'm a customer, but uh, yep. frankly, I haven't paid a ton of attention to, and it really seems to be picking up steam. And I remember mm-hmm. when we were going to Nax, and you were talking about Kushtard, and I'm like, what, um, what? what is that word? What are you saying? And <laughs> I, I, uh, and I'm not proud of this, but I had little awareness really mm-hmm. of, uh, how huge they were and how many different yeah. brands, uh, they've got in the, and the extent of their operations. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting sector to, to keep an eye on. All right. Now, just before we get to, uh, our deeper dive into VUCA and its implications for retailers, let's hear from our presenting sponsor. There are two types of retailers, those that are committed to transforming at the speed of disruption, those that aren't. If you're a retailer that implements significant changes by intuition, you may soon join the hall of shame of executives who bet the farm on initiatives that ultimately failed, so, you know, maybe consider brushing up your resume. But if you are a retailer hungry for a better way to gain useful insights on the impact of your store layout, design, and innovation pilots, you need to know MarketDial. MarketDial is an easy-to-use testing platform that emboldens great decisions, leading to reliable, scalable results. With MarketDial, you can be confident the outcome of your in-store pilot initiatives before rolling them out across your fleet. Validate your remarkable ideas with MarketDial's in-store testing solution. The proof is in the testing. Learn more at MarketDial.com. That's MarketDial.com. All right, Steve. Well, let's get to the uh, the meat of the episode, so to speak, or the the uh, the large part of our episode where we're talking about uh, living in a VUCA world. And it was all, you know, we in one way it was uh, the idea was spurred by the the rapid collapse of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank. But you actually write, started writing about this even pre-COVID. And of course, we just went through this crazy, unexpected time. Uh, it's not done yet. And, and we continue to have these external shocks, but it's nothing in some ways, nothing new. You wrote about it pre COVID. I mean, it wasn't like yeah. everything was always expected and everything was cool and there was no reason to expect any, any sudden things. So talk a little bit about that. Cause it, again, you, you, you were talking about it pre COVID. It's probably been accelerated or amplified with our recent events, but it's not new. No, it's not. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I somewhat got interested in it and I'm go into a big tangent here, but I, I'll call it a little bit of my kind of spiritual awakening or development where I started to realize that, you know, I'm not as in control of, of things in my life as I might like to be. And I often behave. So there was a little bit of just understanding that there's lots of mm. forces in, you know, whether we're talking about business or our personal lives that are really outside of our control and we need to accept the things we cannot change and and focus on the things we can. So that was a little Mm -hmm. bit of the backdrop, but more specific to uh, my consulting and my speaking and my writing was just noticing the increase in volatility and how hard it was to kind of read the tea leaves or plan for the long term because things continue to shift so dramatically. And, And, you know, if you look at business models that kind of, you know, we'll talk more about maybe the macro factors, but, but even thinking about how quickly business models have emerged, you know, whether it's the Warby Parkers of the world or the sure. Ubers or, or, you know, Netflix or these businesses that either didn't exist 15 years ago or were quite tiny that are reshaping 
complete sectors. And now we've got, you know, Shein, Temu, you mm-hmm. know, all sorts of other brands. I mean, TikTok, you know, emerged very, very quickly. So uh, this, this idea of VUCA is really that this is just the way the world operates. Mm-hmm. And that causes us, and I can talk maybe in a second about kind of how the acronyms lead us to particular sure, uh, sure. courses of action. But yeah, I just started to see the pace of change accelerating and that it was becoming harder and harder to sort through what was going to happen. And mm. uh, so I reflected that in the first edition of my book. And then when COVID hit, you know, we could call it maybe a black swan event, if people sure. are familiar with that term of, you know, something that comes really, something's hugely unexpected, mm-hmm. kind of comes out of left field, ends up having really massive, unanticipated impact. I mean, that to me just said, well, wow, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this, right. this has been true, but you know, if you needed an example to really, really prove it, then um, COVID is a good example. And then I guess just say, you know, in the case of the SVB news, which is really more this broader, and I, and I kind of hesitate to, you know, <laughs> say anything too definitive because, you know, by the time this episode comes out or people listen to it, who knows yeah. what else will have happened. Yeah. But, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a potential global banking crisis on my, my bingo card, you know, <laughs> three weeks ago. Yeah. Do you think, uh, perceptually, is it um, fast or moving, more change, more shocks now than 50 years ago, than, you know, 75 years ago? Or is is the infrastructure in place that it just spreads faster? I mean, the news spreads faster. I mean, it's not like we haven't had global pandemics. We had one right after the First World War that killed far more people. We've had banks, back to the Great Depression, we had, you know, we had banks collapse before. Is it is is perceptually this a case, or is it a reality that with the systems and technology that these things come and go even faster? What do, what do you how do you think about that? Well, I definitely believe overall that the pace of change ex- has, continues to accelerate. Mm. You're absolutely right. I mean, there are. I mean, you know, we've had world war, you know, world sure. wars. We've had all you know all sorts of that was these, a big shock um, events. Um, I think the main thing or things that are different mostly relate to digital technology mm-hmm. and how that has created this vast web of connection. And that web of connection plays out in, and, you know, if you just want to say, talk about um, media, right? I mean, media now has shifted so strongly to, to digital. Uh, Netflix's entire business model basically is about streaming, right? Like you could not, mm. technology did not allow for you to prosecute your business in that particular way without this web of connection, without um, processing speeds massively increasing, without the cost of data coming down, without having people, you know, having such a high penetration of smart devices, you know, so all, mm-hmm. all these things created some of these conditions, um, sharing economy models like Uber and Airbnb, right? The digital connection is that allows you to connect assets and people, you know, marry this kind of supply and demand in a way that, you know, that just was not possible 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I do think there's some massive changes. And then of course, what people learn about whatever, a new brand, a celebrity influencer, you know, so much of that is also enabled by digital technology, particularly social media, but, but other things. So I, I think the, the digital shifts are, are the most profound. Uh, the macroeconomic things maybe are more 
more similar uh, mm-hmm. in their in their rhythms than uh, than some of the the technology and consumer preference cha- changes and shifts. Well, let's talk about the framework itself. So at the beginning of the show, we talked about uh, the words, at least, uh, what VUCA stood for. But take us a little deeper into that. I mean, let, take us into the kind of as you see this as a useful framework um, beyond just the words. But how, uh, tell us how you see this coming together and when you do your keynotes, how you advise retailers and other communities, how to use this to your advantage and actually, well, I don't know, develop strategy or develop a more agile organization using these principles. Yeah, there's some overall big takeaways I'll get to in just a couple of minutes, but just to kind of go go through the framework in a tiny bit more detail. Um, and, and yeah, it is uh, is interesting. We were talking off mic about how, while as I mentioned, I did include a section about VUCA uh, towards the end of my book, uh, first edition, and then I included it in the mm-hmm. second edition, which which came out after COVID had uh, had its impact. Uh, I have started to add it back in the last year or so to my my keynotes because I think it is such an important uh, mindset to to have as we're thinking about strategy and and in particular as we're thinking about innovation and transformation. So just to go quickly back to the acronym of VUCA. So V is for volatile, and I think everybody probably gets a sense of of what that means and just how volatile all sorts mm. of conditions can be. Again might depend a little bit what industry, what country you're in. Yep. Uh, but obviously, we saw a tremendous amount of volatility through the pandemic. As we're recording this, Wall Street's been pretty volatile. Sure. I'm a little yeah. scared to turn on the uh, CNBC yeah. when we get done. But what the VUCA framework calls us to think about is really developing our vision much more clearly, You know, to kind of narrow, maybe not dramatically, but, but narrow our focus. Because if we spread ourselves too thin, if we keep too many possibilities open, then we can really be racked by this volatility. So it's always important to have mission, vision, purpose, those kinds of things. But I think if you buy into this, this notion that we are in this VUCA world, then you really, really have to get the clarity of vision. You know, who, who are you targeting? What benefits, uh, what products and services are you offering in a really unique way? What's going to be the thing that really makes you remarkable to stand out and, and so forth? When we think about you, uncertain, uh, again, I think as we sit here, most people probably feel like the future in many mm-hmm. respects is pretty uncertain. Uh, what the VUCA framework suggests is that we really focus on getting a deeper understanding. So the way I think about this anyway is – do we understand our customers well enough? Do we know what it's going to take to acquire more customers, grow them, retain them, get high NPS scores, whatever you know, whatever that might look for you? Do we understand really as well as we need to what the competition is doing? Do we understand which technologies or which macro forces, you know, some of these external, more external things? You know, do we really understand them? Do we have the awareness we need? Do we accept the reality that we're facing right now and might face in the future uh, to take the actions we must? Uh, is, there, compl- is there room in, on, in the you, the uncertainty part? I mean, it feels like a daunting task to try to understand everything that's going on. Like, is it a, is it a spectrum? I mean, a fulsome understanding of so many issues that are changing so fast that are actually really, really complex. What, how do you think about that? Like, when you go to develop understanding, no matter what sector you're in, you may not achieve the Zen of really understanding what the heck's going on, but can you get close? And is the, is the work on understanding almost enough to, to get you close to where you need to be? 
Well, I think it's a great question. There's only so much time. There's only so much money. Right, so right. you've got to be able to to set some priorities. I would argue in general, and in fact, I was just working on this section on uh, the book that um, I'm working on, which is about, uh, well, one of the things it's about is how I believe many companies that are struggling did not do the work, did not mm-hmm. dig deep enough, did not open the aperture enough to understand what was really going on, that they kind of approached their situation as amateurs, not professionals, mm-hmm. uh, to borrow from our friend Stephen Pressfield's yeah, language. Yeah. And so, yes, you cannot do everything. And even with understanding, you cannot change anything. But to approach things with more of a beginner's mind, you know, to not be mm-hmm. so locked into preconceived notions, habits, assumptions, things like that. By the way, on this topic, I would recommend Adam Grant's book, Think Again, which is terrific mm-hmm. on the subject. But mm-hmm. um, you're, talking so you about humil- you're talking about humility, right? I mean, basically be, be, be humble enough to understand how complex it is and, and you know, this beginner's mindset as you, as you and Pressfield really talk about. Yeah, well, there's the humility, I think, going in that you might be wrong, that what got you here may not get you to where you need to go. I mean, there's absolutely that part and the beginner's mind kind of part. But then there's, you know, just doing the work, you know, waking up to the other possibilities. And, and then you have to figure out, and again, you know, you make the point, I mean, you can't do everything. So you have to somehow decide what you think is important, but you also have to be willing to kind of change that along the way. But I, I would say that we are in a world where if you're going to transform for the future, you're going to have to dig deeper and uh, understand things perhaps at a level. And then, you know, think through their implications, maybe run scenarios. I mean, there's a lot of different ways this could, this could spool out. Right, right. All right, let's get to, the, let's get to C, from complexity to clarity. Clarity is not the uh, easiest thing to get to some days, but uh, again, it, I, it's in the work, yeah. I like this framework, and I think in most cases, most people would agree that the world has gotten much more complex, you know, whether we're talking about customer behavior or supply chains or whatever it might be, you know, integrating technology is all incredibly complex. And, you know, hopefully if you spend the time on developing that understanding, you'll have the foundation to be able to deal with this complexity. But the, the C that marries up to it, as you mentioned, is, is clarity. And, you know, it's a little bit of the, you know, if, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about this as intensifying your focus. Uh, so that may be narrowing down the customers that you're focused on, you know, not trying to be a little bit of everything to everybody, because then I think mm-hmm. it's very hard mm-hmm. to understand where you're resonating. Not, you know, not, doesn't have to get super narrow. But I think, for example, if uh, some of the brands we've talked about, you know, RH transformed its business over a number right. of years right. by really getting this narrow, much more narrow focus on which customers it wanted to serve and then serving more of their needs in a more profound way. Uh, Tractor Supplies had a lot of success by not trying to be you know, a pet supply player or a home improvement player in the traditional sense, but having a focus on their sort of customers, including with a, with a strong geographic focus. So I think there's a lot of ways to accomplish this. There's not a one size fits all answer, but getting that clarity of of customer product market fit, those those kinds of things I think are are you know the way you work work through this. Well, I'm um, glad you brought up I'm glad you brought up some retailers because as we as we think about these there's certainly best in class and 
less than best in class examples. But it, it, you mentioned RH. Are there any others? You know, if, as you were saying that, I was reflecting back on all the, the many great interviews we've done, and and it is a bit of a hallmark. I, I think, for example, talking to Satish from the Container Store about how right, we yeah. found we found a growth opportunity by being focused and better, and a little bit of buying a company that's really in to the more high end. Uh, work in customers' homes, but that came from a lot of focus and, and understanding of of who they are and, and where the opportunities are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the one thing we can say is true uh, in retail, but even more broadly, is that it's harder and harder to be a little bit of everything for everybody, right? Uh, because right. there either are very well established players. Uh, you know, in retail, it's easy to think about you know Walmart or Costco, Amazon that that own that position. Carrefour mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, and the internet in general, you know, from a marketplace standpoint, allows you to go out and just sort through fast fast quantities of a little bit of everything for everybody. But really, I think in terms of the space going forward, I mean, you can even look at uh, one quick example that I've been looking into a little bit. If you even look at the hotel industry. If you go back 20 years ago, and I'm not talking about Airbnb in this case, I'm just talking about, you know, more standard hotel models. You know, it used to be you had several, you know, you had local guys, but then you had several big brands, you know, Marriott, Hilton, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hyatt, running essentially the same concept for everybody. I'll invite people, if they haven't done it, to go to the Bonvoy website, which is Marriott Corp's portfolio of brands, or the Hyatt site. And see how many different formats yeah. they now have. It's twenty yeah, I'm always, plus. Uh, yeah, I'm always in, surprised in I'm staying cases. at a hotel and you're like, you're part of that organization. <laughs> I lose right, track. but but That's they, crazy. you know, but but you know the the Marriott and nothing against Marriott stayed in plenty of them or Hyatt stayed in plenty of them, but you know that that kind of peak of the bell curve sort of format was fine. But you know what they discovered, and mm-hmm. I think you know what consumer preferences revealed is you know. There's, there's a great need for, you know, same price point, but sort of hipper, upscale price point right. and hip. You know, that's the W, really luxurious, St. Regis, et cetera. So, so we've seen this micro-segmenting, even though this is on a pretty big scale to really call it micro-segmenting. But we've seen this, this more intense focus. So for a company like Marriott and Hyatt, they've achieved their focus by creating, you know, or acquiring a dozen plus concepts over the last few years mm-hmm. so that's just mm-hmm. a different version of it that's not specifically a retail example you made me think of another example as you were talking about focus because even back to our last episode with uh, kevin tulip from primark i thought his answer around uh, why they don't do e-commerce was particularly illustrative and it's focus right it's like you know as you said in the interview your customers must be asking for it uh, how do you how did he think about that if anyone hasn't listened to that episode it's a great exploration but i think it it's an exclamation point on your your idea of of the VUC so far, right? It's, it's yeah. vision and focus. Well, yeah. And the other thing I will, I, I will add when I, I do talk about this in the book a bit, uh, but plenty of others have as, as well as, as important as it is for figuring out who your brand is for, what's it for and how you will uh, become remarkable for them. It's also really important to say who it's not for. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's, mm-hmm. like, it's okay. Like, you know, I've had people say to me, Hey, you know, what do you, I've said to them, you know, what do you think about this store? Or maybe I recommend a band to them or, you know, or something. And right. they're like, I don't get it. And I'm like, okay, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe it's not for you. Like not yeah. everybody has to like everything. And I think it's often a good example of a really good brand strategy, particularly if you're not, you know, one of these massive, uh, 
you know, mega brands, uh, yeah. which, you know, most people don't work at these massive mega brands and, and you don't want to try to out Amazon, Amazon. Uh, right. It's probably, you can't emulate the them. Yeah, right. Yeah, but, but yeah. who is it, you know, who is it for, but also who is it not for? Mm-hmm. Because if you're trying to please too many people or, or like I said, kind of that peak of the bell curve, you know, normal is for distributions as some people say, you know, <laughs> then, then you may not be able to, to really mm-hmm. carve out something that can be sustainable. Right. Interesting. For a different discussion, but, you know, paging back to our department store episode is, you know, structurally, I'm trying to, you know, please a lot of people across too many things. And maybe that's just a, it's just very hard, very hard to stretch a concept along so many different segments. Let's talk about the last uh, ambiguity uh, to agility. Uh, We've used the word agility many, many times. Many retailers have talked to me about lessons learned from the COVID era, for example, that they just got to be more agile uh, is that uh, is that the the really the final letter, so to speak, in the uh, in VUCA? Is it the most important, or do you think these are all equally important? Does it is any one stand out to you more important than the others? Well, if I had to pick one, I probably would pick the need to be. I mean, there's lots of things we need to do, right? We need to dig deeper. Yeah. We need to have resilience. We need to you know uh, do do a bunch of things. But I think agility is really kind of the big takeaway, particularly from the last few years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot of ambiguous ambiguity in outcomes, the ambiguity, you know, like as we speak, you know, is there, are there going to be a lot more troubles in the banking industry? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. Will interest mm-hmm. rates be going up a lot over the next six months? Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe. Right. I mean, it's Will not. Will First Republic Bank survive? Maybe yes, maybe no. You know? Right. Maybe so, uh, you know, so I think, uh, which is not to say that we shouldn't get input and uh, develop a point of view, but it's probably more useful to be prepared to develop with a number of scenarios. Uh, you know, eventually you've got to, you know, one of my favorite quotes, I think I've probably mentioned it on the podcast, it's in the book, is uh, from Lauren Michaels, the producer of Saturday Night mm. Live. You know, the show doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's 1130. Yeah. So there clearly are deadlines and realities where right. we have to. And minimal to, viable concepts. I mean, it's yeah, funny because right. that pushes against the completeness of the thought in one way is that, listen, we just we just got to get it out there and got to get it going. We got to get curbside stood up because the pandemic has shut down the stores. I mean, I think it fits in your overall framework, but speak to that because that I, I guess that that's the emphasis on agility and uh taking risks i mean it sure. all comes together yeah well i was being interviewed um by somebody the other day about the kind of the concept of agility and creating a culture of experimentation and, and those kinds of things and i said well you know it depends on what the decision is mm. going back to rh you know if you're rh at some point the reality is you got to decide to get a piece of land build this mm-hmm. huge store drop. I don't know what those stores cost, but you know, drop lots, <laughs> you know, tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's, there's not a, uh, you know, they may have tested elements of it, but you know, there's no way really to test that new right. concept without doing it. So, so that's one that's harder to kind of get, get into this, you know, sprint model or, you know, whatever, but there's lots of other things where there isn't this, you know, five years of planning, kaboom you know grand opening and there and it you know works or it doesn't so Mm -hmm. i think you know we have to be mindful of what decisions we're talking about but i would say in general this idea of lots and lots of planning lots and lots of study and then you know ta-da here's my new thing yeah that which was really the model that i think you and i really grew up on 
yeah. um, you know, at least the earlier parts of our career. So now I think it has to be much more dynamic. We have to build as much agility into the system as we realistically can. Lots of trade-offs involved with that, but certainly uh, the general direction is to, to try to build more of that into your system. Uh, I think the other thing, and maybe I'll just kind of wrap up uh, on this point is one of the quotes that I often include in my keynotes and uh, definitely have in the book is from this meditation teacher, John Kabat-Zinn. And, uh, you know, it's really in the context of kind of calming your mind, but I think it works pretty well in business uh, as well as that the waves are going to keep coming. Mm. So we have to learn how to surf, like just accept mm. that the toing and froing of customer behavior, competitive, macro, whatever. I mean, these, these things are going to be out there. Uh, so we can't wish them away or yeah. just put our head in the sand, right? The, mm. the action is, is to learn how to surf, to build that agility and then bring as much knowledge, you know, going back to some of the other letters in the VUCA framework, but bring as much strategy, mm. knowledge, preparedness, as we can to, to the table. And that's, uh, you know, that's how we're best positioned mm. to take advantage of what might unfold. Let's wrap the episode um, with a question. I sometimes ask in my interviews t- advice, two starts and one stop. Give us, give some advice to the retailers and the folks listening, even though you're not retailers, you're, you're thinking about innovation, you think about your company, your, maybe your own company, two things they should start doing right away. And one thing they should probably not do anymore or stop if they're doing it today. Well, I think the major start would be around the focus and the clarity of who you're aiming to serve, you know, both customer, existing customers you want to serve better uh, in a a more remarkable way, but also those you are looking to acquire and and grow in a meaningful way, like really getting clarity on that and understanding whether you're really doing enough to stand out from the competition, not just, you know, this weekend with a hot deal, but you know, fundamentally, right. Um, the second one, I probably go back, uh, to something we touched on, which is to, um, in the words of the great retail strategist, Kendrick Lamar, <laughs> sit down, be humble, you know, mm-hmm. just, you know, realize that, uh, you know, we need to be more open to possibilities. We need to realize that we don't have all the answers. We're not in control of as much as, as we think, I think when you do that, a number of good things can happen. One is you're just open to more possibilities. Right. Uh, secondly, I think maybe, you know, you, you get a little bit more vulnerable and you ask for help. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, some of the mistakes that I made in my career was being unwilling, you know, like I'm the executive in charge. I'm supposed to have all the answers and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to, to, uh, use a, an unfortunate reference perhaps, but you know, this idea that I alone can fix it, right? Like it's a very, very narcissistic way of approaching things. So I think if we move more towards humility, uh, it creates you know more more possibilities, and and we invite people in to solve, you know, what are often pretty pretty challenging, pretty situations. gnarly problems. Yeah, gnarly. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, if you, th- you think about the uh, the stop, I guess the 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 stop that we should maybe end on is stop thinking about month over month sales results from the <laughs> Wall Street Journal. Uh, but boom, boom. But uh, uh, what else can you add in terms of uh, something you see retailers doing and maybe or advice for them not to do thinking of the context of VUCA and a, and a dynamic world? Well, I think it's more around stop uh, attaching yourself, I guess, or or leaning on 
kind of one size fits all or, or more monolithic strategies, you know, be, be much more open to the yeah. test and learn, uh, kind of philosophy fundamentally. Uh, but, but it's really all, all things that get in the way, you know, stop doing all the things that get in the way of deepening your understanding and creating that agility and giving you that, that clarity to really become more remarkable. Um, mm. There's, there's probably a lot that fits under that, that broad heading. Right. Well, that's a, a great way to leave this episode. Uh, really a great theme and, and uh, probably great advice. So let's, uh, let's leave it there. And once again, looking forward to seeing everybody in Vegas, baby. Uh, let's leave it there. And uh, everybody, travel safe. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, so you can catch up with all our great interviews, including Organized for Growth, our interview with Satish Mahatra, CEO of The Container Store. New episodes of Season 6 presented for another season by our friends at Marketile will show up each and every Tuesday. And be sure and tell all your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker and producer, and host of a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one. You can learn even more about me on LinkedIn, and you can catch up with Steve and I in person at Shop Talk in Vegas, March 26th, and a month later in Barcelona at the World Retail Congress, April 25th. Until then, safe travels, everyone. <laughs>